Last week, the trusty green 120-sided die of Friendly Fire selected a film so superficially improbable that a small minority of faithless listeners cried out foul. Impossible! Incroyable! they exclaimed in the signature fake French accents of faithless people. Surely a random das roll could not and would not deliver the second of Sam Fuller's 1951 Korean War films hot on the heels of the first? Well, let me reply plainly in a language everyone understands, the fake British accent of science. You see, the probability that two events will both occur can never be greater than the probability that each will occur individually. So if two possible events let's say A and B are independent, then the probability that both A and B will occur is equal to the product of their individual probabilities. If an event can have a number of different and distinct possible outcomes, A, B, and C, and so on, then the probability that either A or B will occur is equal to the sum of the individual probabilities of A and B and the sum of the probabilities of all the possible outcomes, A, B, and C, and so on, is 1. That is, 100%. In other words, the die don't lie. And a lovely little diptych the two films together are. Both starred Gene Evans as a gruff sergeant, both filmed in the first year of the Korean War by the same writer and director. Last week's The Steel Helmet surprised us all with its backyard production quality and beatnik script, so we went into fixed bayonets prepared for weirdness. Will it be The Crucible, performed by the Apple Dumpling Gang? Maybe Gunsmoke meets A Raisin in the Sun, produced by Arthur Miller, starring Charles Bronson? Well, it was anybody's guess. Instead, Sam Fuller surprised us with a war movie. You want to talk about probabilities? There are an improbable number of exhausted, stubbled, ambiguously ethnic while still being white, wet stogie chompers in this picture, enough to suggest that Bill Maudlin's 1944 cartoons reflected World War II army life so accurately that they were made manifest in the army of 1950, just as surely as 1985's The Breakfast Club created 1989's generation of Benetton-clad, clove-chomping, neo-maxi-zoom dweebies, where they might never have existed otherwise. Here, we have a classic platoon on a suicide mission, left behind to obscure the withdrawal of a larger force by giving the advancing Chinese and North Koreans the impression that a whole division is defending this snowy valley during the first winter of the war. They look bedraggled, but they accept their fate because, god damn it, they're GIs. Then, bang! shooting and stuff and vignettes and set pieces. We have soldiers standing in freezing puddles just long enough for us to grow to kind of like them before seeing all the good ones kill. The platoon attempts to hold their position, pinned down by relentless foreshadowing and a hail of third act voiceovers. Standing center is the super improbably named Sergeant Rock, all but bulletproof, and slightly off center, a reluctant and cowardly Corporal Denno gradually elevating in rank as all the better men die. Heavy lies the crown, and Denno doesn't even like his helmet. It's a good old-fashioned war romp that does it all with grit and imagination. Plus, it has James Dean 
Dancing by uncredited. Put this title on the shelf with your Tropic of Capricorn, you smarty pantses. You're not aiming at a man. You're aiming at the enemy. Once you're over that hump, you're a rifleman. Today on Friendly Fire, Fixed Bayonets! Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that when you've listened a little longer, you'll find out you've got to have the guts to host. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I wavered on that. I, th- I had that written down, and then I, right before we clicked record, was like, is this, is this fun? Do I need to rewrite this? Do I need to think of a different idea? I feel like me and John are on the other side of the the casting table, and we're we're bringing in third hosts to come in and audition, <laughs> and you've come in, and that's the line read you gave it, and me and John are looking at each other like, I think he's the one. We don't. <laughs> we don't need to. We can tell everybody else to go. <laughs> it's the first line in the film, Ben. I mean, you know, it's a that's a heavy hit. That's a heavy hit and start. This is a movie that has a lot of character types that we've seen before but kind of re used like the tropes are are a little different like the main character the richard basehart uh uh, corporal dano like would have been the feckless lieutenant that didn't have the guts to lead his men but has enough insight to have like taken a step back from uh officer candidate school or whatever and then struggles with that the whole movie. But also, like, the generals and the colonels are, like, badass as fuck and, like, smoking and strategizing while they're getting their their wounds stitched up at the beginning of this movie. I rode for Dano up until he told his story about what happened during the training exercise. And then I was like, oh, no, Dano, you should not be out at war at all leading people. Well, we, we only see the officers... Uh, in the first like two minutes of the movie and I really missed them the rest of the film because they were so badass and cool Uh, but the movie then you know became became a movie about sergeants and and corporals because we've seen that guy too the the guy that went to officer candidate school and washed out either because he was a coward or a fuck up (laughs) The movie basically tells you which three characters are going to die. Yeah, right. They're like, well, if, the, if these three characters die, then you get your last act and the movie has a plot. <laughs> I feel like we've seen a lot of cowards and fuck ups that didn't get people amputated. But also, like, I think it's a really different kind of fuck up. Somebody that gets people amputated and doesn't and 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 doesn't care and keeps trying to right. take responsibilities and uh, on themselves and and lead and the kind of person that makes a mistake realizes they are not cut out for the thing that they were doing when they made that mistake and says okay i need to be doing a different thing it's a very fucked up peter principle playing out here he doesn't want it at any point he would do anything not to get a promotion speaking of fuck ups do you guys want to hear about a goof from the imdb goof section sure there are a couple yeah. that i noticed but but Let's hear what they say. 
At the initial briefing in division headquarters, the two-star general and the colonels are all wearing rank insignia. In actuality, officers did not wear their insignia on the front lines since doing so would identify the officers as choice targets for the enemy. It's like lighting a cigarette in, in the jungles of Vietnam. <laughs> or wearing your sword if you're in the Imperial Japanese Army. Right. Hang on just a second. Y you're not sure that that, in fact, was true. And I'm sure somebody with a PhD in rank insignia on the front line that hasn't listened to the episode will correct us on Twitter. <laughs> it seems like the kind of the kind of critique that someone might make like, oh, you know, they never wear rank insignia in battle. But that hasn't always been true. And there was a moment, you know, where uh, where that became policy and i don't know where that moment was and some military historian you're absolutely right ben will not only have the answer but will be really mad that we didn't have the answer doesn't it but, seem like a policy that would have been named after someone like the williams rule clearly stipulates you know, named after the guy who was shot for wearing his and the bullet went right through his general star it shot the insignia right off him <laughs> You know, if you don't pull the insignia out of the wound, it's going to get infected. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It'll separate and fester. Uh -huh. <laughs> have, has, have we watched another movie in the entire history of this show where one of the main actors had a, an audible inner dialogue? Where he was like, boy, it's like a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> I really hope I don't get. I really hope two more sergeants don't die. Then I'll have to step up. Maybe one Joker, maybe two, maybe three. We should restate that we watched. Um, Last week, a film uh, by the same director and starring the same... A lot of the same actors, actually. A lot of the actually. same actors, set in the same time period, made in the same time period. And they really made do... In the same year. They really do work as companion pieces, don't they? I mean, the two of them together. I thought that this was fascinating. The army was reputedly extremely upset with some of the stuff in the steel helmet. But Fox Pictures was so... Uh, impressed with the steel helmet that they signed Sam Fuller to a seven picture deal. And this is the first movie he made uh, on that deal. And the, and the military kept playing ball with him, I guess, uh, knowing that they, it would be better to make friends with him than, uh, than, you know, make an enemy of him or something. But um, yeah, they gave him like a, like a medal of honor recipient as a consultant to do like the verisimilitude of uh, of war and uh, and they became like great friends and collaborators for the rest of uh, his career apparently. Steel Helmet famously had a very small budget. It was neat to see uh, Samuel Fuller given a little more money and then what he did with it. I mean, I'm definitely not talking about uh, that it was shot primarily on a set, but a lot of those great camera sequences that we enjoyed from Steel Helmet, like that is a sensibility that is, that is carried over here in a couple of different scenes that I really liked. I thought the snow looked great in this movie. It did. How did they do it? I don't know. It may be the best snow movie I've seen. The entire movie, I was like, is this in a studio and they have perfect fake snow, which I've never seen before? Or did they actually go out onto a mountaintop and shoot this? It's on a soundstage, and yet the snow looks like you could pack it and make it into a snowball. And yet you can't see anyone's breath. So the studio wasn't air conditioned in a way that would make snow possible the way that we're seeing it. 
And what a great soundstage. I mean, looked great. Although looked fake, right? That first stunt where the Jeep gets hit with the shell and blows oh, yeah. up and crashes, it's yeah. one of the best one of the best blown up Jeep crashes that we've seen in in movies that have a 200 million dollar budget. It looked like they just blew up and crashed a real Jeep yeah, with people in it. It looked like yeah. it really hurt. And <laughs> and people died. Yeah, those Jeeps don't have crumple zones. No. There were a lot of good stunts. There were a lot of there were a lot of corny stunts. And this is a movie for sure where there are a lot of people getting shot where they where they grab their chest and go, ah and then <laughs> fall down and die. But when people come under heavy fire, like I it was pretty convincing sometimes. I, too, wanted to go back and see what the general and the colonels were up to, John. But I, I really liked the structure of this film where you get just a moment to see what the high level is, what the what the 30,000 foot view is. And then you're at sea with the guys, right? Like you're like you, you see them like find out what their orders are and they're like, what the fuck? We have to stay like <laughs> and then and then like you never get the comfort of going back to seeing like the general going like well because of the valiant efforts of those brave 19 men we were able to save three you know it's nothing you're never given any more context they just have to believe that the general made a good choice and like this this is such a uh, such a different flavor of war film where the general did make a good choice and everybody has a pretty easy time believing that despite all the sergeants like the sergeants should be like fuck the brass right it's another it's another instance where there's a lot of you were in the last war talk and yeah. uh and so there's this feeling that a, a weird feeling again that not that this war is a continuation of world war ii but that there's all this institutional memory that gives these it gives the sergeants and the and the officers a lot more authority just like personal authority if you were if you went ashore at anzio and now you're telling a guy to to run up the side of a hill that guy's going to listen to you maybe more than well you see it when 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 it's it's just the corporals left yeah uh, all of a sudden there's like no one has any authority anymore yeah i mean you have to have good enough like enough authority to convince these men to have run up ladders at inchon so that's a <laughs> nice callback. That's the, that's the kind of authority that the, that they're working with. Once we learn that ladder thing, we are just <laughs> we, have, we have seized onto that. That is the main thing about the Korean War. Like a, like a police dog chomping into a forearm. Uh, we will not release the ladder. <laughs> well, this was a police action. Ah, uh, there you go. The thing about the, both these Sam Fuller movies is that there's very little politics. No one ever mentions MacArthur. No one ever mentions the big scope of the war or fighting communists. They 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 talk about communists. They you know they they say it as an epithet, but uh, but there's that one little like sarcastic line like I thought this was a police action, and the other guy says they should have got some cops. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it was a little. Uh, I think probably felt that felt a little seditious in 1951 to say that, but, but weirdly, weirdly, no, no bigger context. You're you, once we get with the sergeants, we're like you said, Ben really embedded with them and not, there's no strategic picture anymore. I mean, the last movie was much more at Liberty to explore some 
uncomfortable topics than this one does. And I wonder if that's the effect of having a big studio, uh, you know, making the making the movie. You know, the last movie had all that personal politics. It was like social. It was social commentary. And and racial politics too, right? That's totally absent here. But but there was never no. Uh, it wasn't really um. There there wasn't a ton of like uh, interrogation of foreign policy exactly, right? It was all it was all um at the level of how, how, it was at a human level rather than at a that a geopolitical level. The only the only um. Ethnic characters were like the Italian guy, <laughs> right? Who who wasn't like an Italian guy who was born and raised in Lower Manhattan. He was actually Italian American, like a, an immigrant, and 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 yet like nobody seems to notice or care about that, right? Right, or and it's never explained, which which is fine. I mean, I guess he's like it's like a post racial future where Italian like Italians are treated the same as everyone that's else. That's right. That's right. Uh, oh. It was it was such a dream. It was such a dream that we could one day integrate Italians. This definitely is one of the movies that falls into the there are eight white guys with the same stubbly facial hair and helmet. And I can't really tell the difference between them. Psychological warfare. Gene Evans was always easy to spot. But everybody else was like, huh? like, it took me a while to figure out that uh, that Deno was going to be an important character in this movie. He looked a lot like the lieutenant. Right. And then there was the guy that was always like the like Cliff Clavin guy that was always like, oh, you know, there, uh, Diane, uh, <laughs> uh, that's a stalactite. And then a, a one at the bottom of the cave is called a stalagmite. <laughs> and and like the tossing around, oh, you've got an education, like you should be a leader thing. I got confused with the guy that uh, mansplained everything. Right. So I, there were like three guys that I I. I think were was confusing for each other at various points early in the film. How would you like to be Gene Evans at this moment in time when every movie star looks like Cary Grant or Tony Curtis? This is like being Josh Gad right now. I'm emotional. Like if you're, right. if you're Gene Evans, like all of a sudden the world has opened to you and, and your distinguishing features are actually uh, a, a career benefit. Right. Like, you can pick him out of any movie. His distinguishing f- features are that he looks like a pint of Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good time to be Gene Evans, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it sure is. Here's another shirt, John. It's the it's the Guinness, like, toucan or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and the pint of Guinness, and it's... It's a good time to be Gene Evans. <laughs> Gene Evans makes you stronger. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the 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 trope of the soldier with the with a, a stub of cigar just jammed yeah. up in the corner of his mouth is always a, a a good World War II way to you know like the Telly Savalas guy in any group because you know there's always a Rickles but there's kind of often <laughs> all, also a Savalas and he's the one that's got the thing the the cigar jammed up in, in the corner of his mouth but in this film the like in that opening sequence as we're panning across the platoon, there's like five guys with the cigar, the same cigar yeah. jammed in the same way. And I was like, well, that's that's how we tell a guy. Vogel was like up in his own little group and was mainly just there to get radioed and then and then stabbed in the back. Right. God, there's some fun things that Vogel did without dialogue. That's that sort of smirk. 
that what are you going to do smirk up on the cliffside? <laughs> ah, so aggravating. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, James Dean was in this movie. I didn't clock him. Did you guys? No, I did not. Uh, just another white guy. I noticed it in some of the like wider shots where there was a whole group of people on screen that I got like the beginnings of an erection, but I, I didn't realize why. So, and then in the scene where they all have their socks off and their feet are jammed together, obviously I got an erection there. How are you going to know it's James Dean if he's wearing a helmet? I think a big part of the James Dean thing is his hair, right? Is James Dean in the foot scene? Oh, the foot scene. That was a big moment. We got to check wiki feet to see if James Dean is in the foot scene. <laughs> Have your feet ever been so numb that, that you couldn't feel them at all? Yeah, I love that two guys think that one foot is have have misattributed one of their one of their feet. <laughs> I've taken a shit so long that my feet fell asleep, but they, oh, the feeling boy. came right back. Oh god. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, that that is a scene that could have been played for laughs, but it actually was like kind of scary. Yeah. What, what, it was a very effective and small way of uh of communicating how cold it was and how dangerous that was. But my feet have been very cold and frostbitten and I've, I've never been, they've never been so cold that you could be, you could be hitting my foot and I wouldn't at least feel it like in my knee. (laughs) Why isn't that scene funny is something I want to interrogate. And I think the reason why is that, Samuel Fuller gives everyone that breath to look at each other and think about what has just happened, right? Like everyone doesn't just pop up and go to their cots or or go go sleep in the corner of the cave somewhere. There's that moment of recognition that he lets you have, and I think that's really deft. Yeah. When Denno jumps up in that moment, mm-hmm. there really is a pause there where I wondered what's happening? What just where whose foot is that? I thought for sure it was going to be a dead guy who yeah, was, who I did was too. behind them or something. I did too. <laughs> and, and and that that reveal happens so slowly and there is that there's that sort of interregnum moment where you're like it's a dead guy and then you realize oh no it's Sergeant Rock. That was very yeah. effective. Sergeant Rock is a is is a great leader. I love the just kind of like well only three things you got to worry about in the inventory, gentlemen. So uh, get those socks off. Get those little piggies rubbing together. It's very matter of fact, but it is freighted with how much danger they are all in because they are fighting the North Koreans, but also the cold. There's great value placed on dry socks, and yet every one of these guys is walking through that cold puddle in the middle of the cave. That drove me crazy. That drove me nuts. There's a big <laughs> puddle, a freezing puddle right in the middle, but you can walk around it. You could I would be walking around the puddle. They're all wearing tall boots and gaiters. There's not water's not gonna get in there. What? <laughs> those are those are just like nineteen fifty red wings. Uh, they're like totally <laughs> waterlogged and freezing cold. No, if you look really closely, you can see the little Gore-Tex tags. <laughs> there are a couple of great boot scenes. If you're somebody that likes old boots, a couple of that when when uh, when the guy is walking across the minefield and stepping on the snow, we're just we're close focused oh, on some beautiful old boots. You need your snow to look right for that scene, right? Like that's, I feel like the centerpiece scene that you build out from. Super effective tiptoe through the minefield scene. 
the way the snow like slightly collapses when he puts his weight on on each foot. Yeah. Like and so his foot like clicks down a quarter of an inch each time is like boy that is that make that just peaks the tension. If it's not real snow, it has to be poison. Like it's a chemical that that they could only use in 51. <laughs> That's why you never so saw many, it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cuz it's it's the powdered thalidomide. It makes me suspicious. <laughs> Powdered thalidomide is, is the way to go, right? Yeah. That minefield scene is so great in retrospect because you can see the buildup. Like, Denno has a moment to to do something heroic without firing a weapon, but that that counterpoint of him also wanting to save a life so that he's not next man up is just terrifically done, I think. Yeah. That's yeah. a wonderful plot evolution. And then to have the sergeant die as soon as he gets him back oof yeah it just erases all the her, the heroism and sergeant rock is like well nice effort <laughs> but he was dead anyway yeah and the minefield <laughs> sketch is useless too like every single reason to go out there is dissolved at that point I feel like this is a war movie where you could like map this experience onto lots of non-war things just like things that you want to have the courage to do in your own life and just haven't gotten there yet and that felt kind of unique and interesting among the films we've watched like this is much a parable about just like finding the courage in yourself to do something or having that uh, a situation thrust upon you where you, you you like must have that courage well there there are two there are two things going on with deno because deno doesn't want to be a leader and that's a very relatable kind of you know, he washed out of officer candidate school, even though he was at the top of his class, because when he was put in charge of of men in a in a tense situation, he made bad decisions. He panicked. Understandishable. But then <laughs> Deno also doesn't want to fire his weapon. Right. And so the whole narrative of Deno being like, hey, look, I'm a good soldier. I do my job. I'm here to I'm here to play. I just don't want to lead is not true because Deno also is out there with like guys climbing right up his nose and he's got a bead on him and he doesn't pull the trigger. And at one point, you know, there's a firefight and Sergeant Rock grabs his gun and is like, it's cold as ice, but he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't bust him down for not firing his weapon. He's like, you're going to have to fire your weapon, dude. Here's some bullets. Go kill a guy. Go kill eight guys. Deno from that point on, Starts keistering his weapon just to keep it warm. So, so Rock won't suspect. John, you're totally right. It seems like two different issues for Deno. One of them being a sort of conscientious objection that's totally separate from uh, his bad leadership skills. And I wonder why they, they commingled them for his character so much to the degree that they did. I'm not sure. You know, the, the like putting people at risk by being a bad lieutenant... Not a bad lieutenant. He's not. He's not doing coke off a hooker's ass. But you know, there's two two different ways of putting people at risk: bad decisions, but also like he's letting enemy scouts get right into the perimeter. Yeah. Uh, his failure to fire is going to result in the death of somebody, and and maybe arguably does even. Well, or at least you know the sergeant takes a bullet. Yeah. We've seen a lot of movies, like movies that were made in the first year or two of World War II, 
were much more explicitly about like e even if they weren't just a recruitment video like they were recruitment tools and and we've seen movies that dealt with people that had reluctances or misgivings about uh, being in combat and like giving them rationales for participating in the war in one way or another and this really seems like a very distinct a distinctly different project because this guy's internal struggles are not mapped onto like a you know a larger need of the of our society to rally together at this time or whatever I think we've talked about it before, but the Korean War is has always been really hard to get a handle on for me. What 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 it felt like in America at the time it made it even more difficult because this was my mother and my uncle's at her brother's time. Like my mother was born in thirty four, so nineteen fifty one, she was seventeen years old. Right, all of the kids in her high school were going to go to the Korean war. And a lot of them did, but my father's generation who were world war two vets, like my dad never talked about Korea. He never, he never mentioned it to me. So, it, so it was seen as a kind of, it's almost like he forgot. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it was seen as a, I don't know what it was seen as, right? Like, yeah. Cause it's not, it's not Vietnam, but it, it's got all the, all these parallels to Vietnam right. in that it was, quote unquote police action it was a asian nation where the south was fighting the north and it was a proxy for capitalists versus communists i mean i think partly it was that it ended in a stalemate and everybody was like let's just forget that happened it was a tie we still have troops there right like there's still a like the dmz is is still manned by american forces i mean by ignoring the true consequences in in Korea, did that make Vietnam, like, did that grease the skids toward making Vietnam possible the way that it was? Has to have. What's the worst that could happen? We could have a huge, <laughs> a huge border to, to guard in some other country. Right. This is a movie where we see the Chinese. We're not fighting North Koreans in this war. We're fighting Chinese regular army. Chinese regular army and their shipping blanket uniforms, <laughs> which are amazing. I love their uniforms. <laughs> I love them so much. Everything quilted, please. Yeah. Oh, my God. They they're not a faceless enemy. We see them repeatedly and they're not they're not parodied. Uh, you know, there's there's politics in it, but they're not an unseen, unknowable other. They're portrayed as kind of a, you know, like a. um a worthy opponent. Isn't it interesting? You also see them at rest too. It isn't just an, an oncoming horde or a bunch of troops taking their positions. Like we see them eat and drink right. and rest and, and play the bugle. And like, we see different facets of them in a way that I think is unique. Yeah. That psyops stuff with the bugle <laughs> is wild. I know, right? Super low, low intensity, crazy making bugle playing. So they get one of those bugles and use it to trick them, trick the enemy into thinking that there are Chinese troops in a place that they didn't know about or something. Is that who knows? I couldn't I couldn't wrap my mind around what was going on there. That was a weird scene because, you know, Sergeant Rock said, go get me one of those bugles. And he sent two guys out and one of the guys got killed. And it 
really made me think like, you know, when you send, when you send two guys out to capture an enemy bugle and one of them dies, all of a sudden that bugle cost a life, cost one of your men. But there wasn't a ton of, you know, like Sergeant Rock didn't spend a ton of time going, looking at the bugle and going, was this worth a guy? Yeah, nobody was like, what the hell is wrong with you? You had to die for that? But in a way, it also felt kind of real. Like, yeah, go get the bugle. And oh, a guy died because that's what happens in war. But I wanted that bugle or I, you know, and now we're going to play the bugle and it's going to fuck with them. Isn't that hilarious? Right. What fucked with them was that that guy played Chuck Mangione. (laughs) That's enough to fuck with anyone. But I really did feel like that rather than seem like a strange, um, rather than seem like a thing the film didn't address, I feel like the film kind of did address it. The idea that, that you might lose a guy on a mission like that and that it all panned out in the end. It's the type of thing that if you were Sergeant Rock and you had mustered out of the army and you were sitting, you were working at a Pontiac dealership 15 years later (laughs) and laying in bed at night with your, with your wife next to you. And you're thinking about the guy that got killed trying to steal a Chinese bugle for you. And yet I guess part of being a Sergeant is that you, you have to say like a guy dies. I'm just trying to buy a trans am man. (laughs) Look, man, I lost a lot of guys. (laughs) You know what? Is there another salesman around here? I could talk to (laughs) the bugle. Me, the creeps. I traded a man for a bugle. (laughs) The guy tries out the horn on the car and it sends this guy into a fugue state. (laughs) (laughs) The last Sam Fuller Korean war movie we watched was about establishing one observation post. This one is about establishing a whole bunch of them, but because of the like ruggedness of the terrain, they they find that they have some blind spots like that they, you know, get snuck up on and they, you know, they ring up Vogel on the radio and they're like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, you gotta, you gotta spot those guys. And they're like, we didn't see them. <laughs> and uh, I really liked the the mind puzzle of that. Like, how do you like, the, you know, there's a there's a spot in the road that they're going to try and defend and try and make themselves seem like a bigger force than they actually are. And the movie does a great job of kind of explaining the the challenge of that to you and then showing you these guys actually going about doing it. And it's a it's a it's a very different kind of problem than we get in a lot of movies. It's more like it's like the 300 at Thermopylae, not not, uh, you know, your typical uh, we got to go. We got to go take this town or we got to we got to bomb this bridge or whatever kind of movie. Although, although the, the studio backlot did have a did create a geographical problem in that in that there were there were quite a few scenes particularly as the siege went on where the 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 set just didn't allow for the geography to make any sense because people are yeah it was a little confusing people are looking down on other people and you, there's a little bit of stock footage and it had some school play constraints yeah for blocking. sure for sure so that that was a that was a um, a little bit of an issue, it was particularly at the end when the when that Chinese squad overran them and then was able to look down on their position. I was like, now where are they? Exa- how do they have? <laughs> how can they see like inside the cave? 
but you know, I don't know. Yeah. What, what can you do? You can't build a, you can't build a set. That's you couldn't film this like in the Alps. That would have been very expensive. Right. And uh, who knows if the equipment of 1951 could stand up to the kind of environmental challenges that filming on location would have presented. One of the things you have to contend with in very cold environments, uh, is, especially in this area, is like the batteries are like, they might be like lead acid batteries or something like that. They're, but they're like, they're not like modern lithium ion batteries where you can like fly your drone wherever you want. Like if you're out out in the cold with a camera from that was built in, you know, 1949, the kind of batteries that power that camera lose their charge very rapidly, the colder it gets. So it would actually be like a technical problem. Like they'll gather the batteries together and then they'll start rubbing (laughs) them to keep them warm. And, (laughs) and like one of the batteries, like one of the batteries is your battery and you didn't even know it when you were rubbing it. That's a scary moment. Yeah, interesting uh, that both these movies are black and white. This was a uh, Ben. What what was the? What do you consider like the era where color started to be the the majority of films? When is when when does that happen? Oh, I don't know. I this this seems like it's well into the color era. I mean, we've watched a lot of World War II films that were shot during World War II in in color. So. Um, yeah, I don't know if this was, if if it was still like a a perfectly normal aesthetic choice or a or what. The fifties were really the bridge decade between black and white and color, but it was the mid fifties when the Technicolor films really began to popularize. Right. But it's not like you couldn't have made a color film in nineteen forty one. Like the technology was there, it just wasn't as available as it would be later. Yeah. I wonder how that snow and that back lot would have looked in color. Right. Oh, yeah. That stuff was actually orange. <laughs> I realized that. Powdered thalidomide is, or, you know, like fluorescent orange. Some of the guys think you're playing footsies with your own squad. What do you think a 1951 Sam Fuller is trying to say to a cinema-going public in, uh, in making this film? Cynically, I feel like he is trying to say that I am worth a seven picture deal and I'm not going to rock the boat with a bunch of conversation about race relations back home. Interesting. That whole, you've got to be, you got to have the guts to leave. He hit that so hard that it fit. It felt ironic. It felt sarcastic to me because mm-hmm. there's nothing else in the movie that, that that is spoken in that way there's no other line in the film that sounds like that it felt really like here's your here's your propaganda line now get off my back uh, and it was and it was done all, it all, almost felt like like a, 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 a like a dark comedy reading of that line For, to open the film on it was weird and i and i felt like yeah. is this movie going to be like this is there, there going to be a guy with a cigar in the corner of his mouth going you got to have guts um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it wasn't. They only rang that bell once. Right. And, 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 and so it's, it's, it stands out as like, like, uh, like he was hoping that whatever army censor was watching the movie would sit back in his chair and go, all right, this movie's okay. And then turn it off or something. Not watch the rest yeah, the of it. The censor with a short attention span that just yeah, right. turned it off. Not watch the rest yeah. of the movie where it's like, well, it's really about a coward 
the the army center is Vogel. <laughs> I'll put you in the movie. You just gotta look the other way. I didn't see nothing. Has there ever been a more Polish-looking guy than Henry Kolke, the guy who plays Vogel? Wow, what a face! He's one of those guys that that is like completely ageless. He could be twenty-seven. Yeah. He could be seventy-seven. <laughs> You talk about city miles. <laughs> <laughs> the the film is very narrowly focused, right? It's not it's not just that it's just a platoon holding a pass for a very limited amount of time. You know, the film almost happens in real time. It's like you guys hold this pass for some number of hours while we bug out. But also it's set in winter, which really sp- is a it, it makes it extremely specific about the setting, right? If you're in if you're in the US in 1951 and you're watching this movie, I mean it it was set within a period of a couple of months in a place in Korea, you know, like it it it's it's not like World War World War II movies, we have that benefit of knowing all the different battles. So you can say like, "Oh, the Battle of the Bulge happened in winter." And this is set there then. But, you know, we don't have that same strong memory of like the Korean War and all of its its engagements. Yeah, this came out at the end of November in 1951. So like almost like pre-imagining right. wintry combat in the Korean War. No kidding. Right. They would have had to have been filming it in the summer knowing it was going to come out in the winter. I mean, it, it, it's very... It's so localized that that also feels like an interesting creative choice, right? Rather than make a... Because I guess the war hasn't been going on long enough for them even to to make a general picture of war. You know, the way MASH is kind of like they throw every bit of Korea in it. You know, there's always always something happening in MASH because it was a 10-year-long television show about a a two and a half year long war. Yeah. But, but this is like, it's so, it's so narrow. It's really curious. It's interestingly speculative in a lot of ways, because like, even when you boil down the strategy, it's just an anonymous Canyon and a, and a river and a cave. Like you don't really know where you are geographically in country. You get a look at a map, but that could be anywhere, right? It it doesn't matter. It's more about the people. So the Korean War started in the summer of 50 and that the the invasion of Incheon and we and that was the movie with the ladders that you were referencing what what was that movie called MacArthur uh, Operation Chromite Colon Battle for Incheon <laughs> <laughs> Operation Chromite Colon Battle for Incheon was in September Never has such a bad movie made such a big impression on this podcast <laughs> That was September of 1950 and then by December of 50 that we were the the Marines were at the Chosin Reservoir. That was like a major a major incident. And then this this movie was made in the summer of the following year. Um but this movie was made after MacArthur was kicked out of Korea. So I mean a, a lot of stuff has happened already. None of that is referred to in the movie. Yeah. But we have had we have had fighting in winter already for one season before this movie comes out. So it's not, it wasn't completely speculative. We'd seen it. We'd seen it already. I've seen it all. I think that the, that these battles are referring to 
like the Chinese more than once really threatened to like invade the South, like, and just do, do a massive troop movement and just, you know, push, uh, push the American army into the ocean. Yeah. Well, and crucially, this is a movie about a withdrawal. Like they're, they're the main force is retreating in this movie. And that's like, uh, interestingly, like so many movies treat, treat retreat as shameful or, you know, like there is a lot of emotional weight to the idea of retreating. And in this movie, it's like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to pull back for a second, regroup, then we're going to go get them. Like there's no, this doesn't reflect on the overall mission at all. The fact that we're retreating, it's just, how do we retreat from this place right now so that we can kick their ass later better? Right. I, I guess this is something that I didn't realize until recently, but soul changed hands four times in the war. The Chinese and North Koreans captured Seoul and then the allied troops pushed him out. That happened four times. And then the killers had it for a, a, a little while, right? And they, cause they had oh the soul, oh no. but they weren't soldiers. Oh no. Oh, man. <laughs> really bad. <laughs> hey guys, remember that great, the killers joke I did earlier? <laughs> we are through the joke looking glass now. I have a question. Any significance to uh, him being named Sergeant Rock and Republic of Korea are okay? Oh, I mean, Sergeant Rock was a was a pretty longstanding character, right? Sergeant Rock was a comic book character. When did Sergeant Rock come come into the popular imagination? Nineteen fifty nine is uh, the first appearance of the comic book character. Was it based on this character? Can't have been. No. No reference to fixed bayonets exclamation point in the in the Wikipedia article about Sergeant Rock. I mean it's a great name for a yeah. for a for a comic book hero. And it was a good name for the character in this movie. I, it leapt out at me because I was reading the Korean War article on Wikipedia after watching this movie and ROK is you know, sprinkled pretty liberally throughout that article. Right. And I was like, oh, Sergeant Rock. I wonder if that's intentional or not. That would be a clever little Easter egg. Well, at the end of the movie, unfortunately, Sergeant Rock is dead. And we know this because those are his dying words. <laughs> he I'm tells dead. Dano, I told you, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> but is this film dead come review time? Nobody's got dry socks at the end of this film, but are there any dry eyes? Been thinking a lot about what the right rating system would be for a film like Fixed Bayonets! Exclamation Point, a film which can't really get it together enough to decide whether or not that exclamation point belongs in its many marketing materials that you find <laughs> online. Some posters <laughs> do have it, some don't. I'm... I'm personally a big fan of the exclamation point, and I want more of them to be in the movie titles. Better than a colon. <laughs> Even though they often are the harbinger of a very bad film. Uh, it's going to be on a scale of one to five bugles we rate yes. this film. And the reason is uh, how instrumental oh. that object is <laughs> as, a, as both a tool that the Koreans use to psychologically fight against our American troops and and the very thing that the US troops 
take and use against them. It it feels like propaganda, right? It feels related to propaganda, the use of that bugle, because it's not a weapon. It's it's a way to torment or rally, depending on how you're using it. And I think that's related to how we're going to be reviewing this film, because in what ways does being an effective propaganda film relate to being a good film film? I don't think that the two are very related. And I think on the one hand, this film probably did great things in recruiting a person that might feel like they would be a bad soldier. (laughs) The very straight line in Dano's story of, you know, a guy watching the guys above him get killed and then him reluctantly being foisted into his position of leadership wasn't interesting enough to me to hold my attention. And this is in spite of the many great things that Samuel Fuller does as a director. And I and I loved many of them. Like all those three and four point sequences he does. That one sequence where Sergeant Rock scrabbles down the hill, then back up a hill, and then he he bayonets that guy behind the rock, and then he scrabbles back down again and then looks upward towards the camera to to yell at Vogel. Like that is a one minute sequence that he does on a crane. And the crane's constantly moving. It's just incredible some of the stuff he does. But it's anti-incredible some of the character development that happens in a film like this. And while we do not compare friendly fire films to each other, I found Steel Helmet to be a far more interesting film in the story that it tries to tell. And I hope that this first Samuel Fuller film does not begin a pattern of less interesting characters and less interesting stories as his oeuvre continues with the 20th Century Fox company. I'm just going to give this three bugles. Good, but not great. Wish it were more interesting. I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. I think um, every film does not have to be a polemic. I think it's a really interesting demonstration of the kind of range of talent that Samuel Fuller had as a director. I mean, we've seen some, you know, I thought I thought the big red one was, you know, a, a cheaply made film that really showed its its cheapness. <laughs> and uh, and that's really true of the steel helmet as well. Like the like you can hear the sound bouncing off the walls inside the tiny studios that they shot it in, even when they're trying to make it look like they're fighting in a forest. I mean, this is a, a much higher budget film and a much more polished film than the steel helmet, but it's also a totally different kind of film. And it uh, is very distinct from the big red one and the steel helmet. Like, like all three films are war films that take on a very different aspect of war. And I think that's, uh, that's really cool to see. And this one is uh, not exactly a thinker, but it is a fun action movie. And uh, I'd, I'd recommend it for, you know, just an, a, a fun afternoon film. I'm going to give it three and a half bugles. Which half? The uh, the horn half or the mouthpiece half? You assume that I'm cutting it that way. I'm not. Oh, oh you're bifurcating it? Whoa. Yeah, like Boromir's horn. <laughs> oh, I never saw that coming. <laughs> Like Boromir's horn. Like you go to a museum for brass instruments and you see the inside. 
Yeah, yeah, the cross section. Right. Cut with one yeah. of those high pressure water cutters. <laughs> Cloven in twain. What about that? Wow, it makes me want to cross my legs. I know. The horn of Gondor Yikes. is no more. Yikes. <laughs> well, the sword of Isildur can be reforged. <laughs> so can the bugle of fixed bayonets. Yeah, you know, I come down really hard on a lot of movies, as you know, uh, when they insult my intelligence or when they overreach or, you know, in, in a lot of in a lot of cases when they just um, when they when I feel like they've failed, they've failed at whatever they're trying to do. And this is a movie that's it still feels like a play kind of, you know, the 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 it's definitely set in uh, in a paper mache universe. <laughs> and it um you know it, it's it's very limited in scope it's trying to tell a, an extremely limited story and a lot of its failures are just that you can see the you can see the chicken wire behind the tree the performances are are great and i i guess what i'm saying is adam a lot of times you go to you um you ride pretty hard for movies that are just fun or just uh not fun but like well, pork chop movies or popcorn movies, like, let's just watch it. It doesn't have to say anything. It doesn't have to do anything or mean anything. That's not unfair, but, like, I think the proximity effect is happening here with me and that having just seen Steel Helmet, you know Samuel Fuller has that gear in him. Right. And then he totally downshifts into fixed bayonets. And that's, right. I think, that's how I'm going to defend myself against something like that, which is George P. Cosmatos is not... <laughs> is not making a great war film and then making First Blood Part 2. Right. <laughs> like, you know you know the kind of film he's making. He's making Tombstone and that, you know? But there are so many, there are so many uh, different examples of films where, where the inconsistencies, the, uh, the chicken shitness of the failure to engage the material leaves me with a, with a rotten taste. And in this case, you know, what he did was make, um, he made a personality, uh, like ad adventure movie. It's almost like, it's almost, it almost feels like a, like one of the Huck Finn novels. And, and we've seen <laughs> books like that too, like boys adventure, right? You mean Huckleberry Finn, the great American novel? Yeah, John? Huckleberry <laughs> Finn, but there are a couple of other, there are, there are other, there was a lot of fanfic around Huck, Huck Finn. He did a lot. I went he, into a bookstore and I asked for a couple of those Huck Finn novels. <laughs> you know, Huckleberry Finn went to San Francisco. He joined the circus. He became a surfer. Right. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It's a whole <laughs> yeah. set of them. He had sex with Spock, I believe. It's a whole, a whole series of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, so those scenes that you referred to Ben, like the long shots or like, or Adam, the, the ones where, you know, Sergeant rock falls all the way down a mountainside, runs up the other side, then comes back down and runs up. You know, that's all, that's all just, I, I was just throwing popcorn in watching that stuff go by the, and the failures, like the, the, the fact that none of the, or a lot of the characters take a long time to distinguish themselves from one another the most egregious scene in the movie is where the camera pans across all the different guys and we hear their inner thoughts and they're like, yeah, I hope I'm going to get that guy's socks. I hope he never, he doesn't think he's going to get in my socks. And then the third guy's like, I hope he doesn't realize I'm wearing his socks. It's like, <laughs> not really. That felt like a studio note moment. Yeah, like, it did. Where are the jokes? 
<laughs> how about how about one joke? But there was never a there was never a a point I don't think where I felt like this movie was betraying me. You're absolutely right that that Fuller has and 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 I I I'm with you that I look forward to watching other movies in his oeuvre, uh and hope that he continues to like explore darker themes but you know he doesn't shy away from all the all the different aspects of cowardice and and fear but you're right it's not like a four bugle movie (laughs) but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna go with ben here i'm gonna do three and a half bugles except my bugle is gonna be cut like a normal person would cut a bugle (laughs) whoa across so that you and I'm going to keep the mouthpiece side so that what you get All is right. a bugle that goes <laughs> This is one of our finest episodes. <laughs> this is a dumb show. Uh who's the finest guy in the movie? Ben, who's your guy? So there's that uh, great sequence where we're uh you know, hunkered down with the guys in the cave and the uh, the enemy soldiers all start playing their bugles. And there's a shot where I, at first I thought there were three guys playing bugles, but then one of the guys takes his bugle down and I realized it was a beer bottle and he like passes it to another guy who also takes a swig. <laughs> and like... That was like, great. That, it was just a little visual gag that... I just I love I love stuff like that and I laughed out loud at it and so a beer bottle that looks like a bugle guy is my guy. <laughs> I had a very similar guy. It was a visual gag that that got me. It was when uh, Whitey's explaining telepathy to Bersolino and uh, and he's gesticulating wildly while <laughs> while explaining this to him. And one of my favorite bits that I just do just for me is whenever anyone gesticulates, I'll always like look at their hands. I'll, yeah. I'll follow the hands around because it amuses me. And the way that, that Bersolino does that to Whitey here, uh, it was very funny to me. So I'm going to make him my guy for that reason. He's not doing it nice. as a bit, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That was a moment of levity that I enjoyed. Uh, my guy is the, um, is the Chinese spotter at the at, at the final sort of siege of the valley who is kind of like peering over the edge of a cliff with his quilted hat on and his quilted jacket and he's he's looking down and he's making these like hand signals like three fingers <laughs> two fingers yeah five fingers and somehow that is communicating to the mortar team like how to precision place these mortars down in the valley but the, the look on his face is just is just really precious and yeah I've, well it's like it's like a coach in a dugout you know communicating with the third base coach like th- those hand signals have to be very obscure so that the enemy doesn't figure out what they're saying i really dug that guy i don't know why i i, I couldn't get enough of him good guy well, I think it's uh, about time to pick our next motion picture off of the big long list. John, do you have your 120-sided die over there? Affix the die, John. I do. <laughs> I'm making hand signals to tell you how to roll it. Here I go. Here's the die. Here's my die corral. All right. 
Next film. Wow. Number six. A very low number. A low number. We hardly ever get those one-digit numbers. This is uh, this is taking us away from the Korean War and uh, back into the warm embrace of WW2. This is a 1967 film directed by Anatoly Litvak. It's called Night of the Generals. Making a left turn away from the troops, hanging out with the leadership class. All right. Yeah. That'll be next week's film. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it, gentlemen. Me too. Uh, you love Poland, Adam. I, wow, I'm really looking forward to this one, you guys. <laughs> you know when you, when you put it in those terms. <laughs> it's your favorite country. Um, all right, well, that will be next week. Uh, we will leave it with Rob's from here. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. If you're looking for more Friendly Fire, last year we put out an episode covering 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, a film about the famous Doolittle Raid. And like today's film, it was made during the war it depicts. Go check it out! Don't forget Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of listeners like you. You can leave us a positive rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, and you can also head to MaximumFun.org join to pledge your support. If you do, you'll gain access to our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all of the Maximum Fun bonus content. If you'd like to chat about the podcast online, please join one of our many social media discussion groups, or just simply use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.